my name is Devin Johnson. I'm a business program manager on Microsoft's legal business operations and strategy team. I produce content for the Business of Law podcast, including this episode. This episode, we're speaking with two Microsoft legal interns. Hello, I'm Jason Barnwell, and I work on legal business operations and strategy for Microsoft. Today, we are speaking with two of Microsoft's summer interns for legal affairs, Craig Mon and Sarah Tanzi. Craig just finished his first year at Stanford Law and is working in Microsoft's artificial intelligence and research team. And Sarah is at Harvard Law working for the competition law group. So before I get into it with them, I should probably give a little bit of background on the Microsoft uh, Summer Legal Summer Intern Program. So we've been doing this for many years now, um, and each summer we bring about 10 students uh, to our new campus. And we recruit, recruit folks uh, from schools and programs across the United States, states with which we have relationships. And our goal is to build a class uh, of diverse folks with all kinds of backgrounds and perspectives, um, and to bring them here and give them a little bit of our experience with the goal of turning them into ambassadors who can help us tell our story um, and can really lead with a real understanding of what we are trying to do and some sense of what the work is like. And recruiting is not really the, the top line goal. Um, we have hired uh, former uh, interns back, but it really is about giving people an opportunity to understand what the work is actually like. And I'll just say from a, a personal perspective, I get so much energy from you guys because I've been in the practice for a while now and just seeing your fresh perspectives and seeing the energy you bring is, is just wonderful. Um, and I also wanna thank you for being really brave because you know, when you're a summer intern, you're, you're trying to make sure that you don't screw it up, right? Like that you're, you're, you're like there's, you're at the beginning of your career and you're like, I, I don't want to say anything that's going to get me in trouble. And, and, and so it takes real courage to step forward and uh, have these kinds of conversations, record them and, and put them out there. Um, so thank you guys. I, I'm really grateful. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, we're glad to be here. Absolutely. So let's start with your background. Um, so <laughs> what, what was the animating uh, principle that's like, you know what? I should go to law school. Well, uh, I, when I was growing up, I did a lot of math and science. I have all, a lot of engineers in my family, and I was pretty sure I was going to be an engineer. Uh, and then one day I ran into an engineer who became a patent attorney. Uh, and I think I, I realized that what I was looking for was a career that would allow me to combine the analytical thinking and the proximity to technology with writing and other forms of communication and working with people um, that I didn't see as much of in engineering. And so law school became kind of an avenue for me to explore the combination of, of my interests there. Uh, and that's kind of what got me on the path toward law school. I did a little bit of um, interning at law firms while I was in college and, and confirmed that it was going to be a good decision for me. Yeah, I, I do have some lawyers in my family. And since I was about seven, people told me, Oh, you're going to be a lawyer when you grow up, which I think is a polite way of telling a child to shut up when they're <laughs> arguing. Uh, but I, I ended up taking a different path uh, and working for several years uh, in nonprofits and the human rights field uh, before deciding to come back to law school and try to get some concrete skills to support the movements in which I had been immersed for a while. So you were really thinking about 
what are the complementary skill sets that might be able to potentially contribute more into this existing space, that area of expertise, Sarah? And Craig, it sounds like you were like, what is a strong complement to this very divergent uh, background that I have, uh, where both of you, I think, are probably solving for, what's a one plus one equals three situation? So that you already have some existing experiences, some existing skills, and then how can you blend those together with something else that makes you have this you know, real compounding value. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, I, I think that's pretty accurate. I think for me, it was um, kind of a way to find balance. You know, I, I wanted to spread out my experience, kind of get a, a broad foundation that I can hopefully build on. Okay, makes sense. So you had these conceptions about what law school was going to be before you got there and what you were going to do with it. And I'm curious if that has changed at all, if you've gained any perspective, if you if you have a slightly different view on, on the realm. Yeah, I, I would say my perspective on what I want to do with my legal education changes by the week. Uh, <laughs> it's, on the one hand, uh, law school is exactly what I feared and exactly what I hoped for. Uh, and I have opportunities to move into all sorts of interesting work, stuff that I feel like is quite familiar and an area of skill for me and stuff that's completely new. Um, and on the other hand, uh, there's a lot of work going on that I didn't anticipate finding interesting. Like the fact that I'm sitting with the competition law group this summer, I knew very little about antitrust before coming to Microsoft. Uh, and I think that that has translated into questions around what I might want to pursue with my legal education. So I came in thinking like I've worked in human rights nonprofits my whole life I'm going to do this and go back and work in some human rights nonprofits and now I'm thinking about different ways and different people with whom I might work to pursue the same goals so that's really interesting because that is part of the goal of, of what we try to do and so I will now kind of break out of the, the, the wall a little bit and say so I interviewed Sarah uh, I, I did the loops and you did not have a, let's just call it a overly conventional background for what people might think would be a prototype for what ends up in our space. But I saw elements in what you discussed that really are the future of what we're going to need to be concerned about from a policy angle. And so I was like, wow, that's somebody who has a perspective that's probably very future looking when you start thinking about what is what like what will technology do to society right like what will it really do because it tends to be this amplifier and sometimes it creates fantastic opportunity and sometimes it distorts where that gets placed and so one of the reasons i was really interested in the perspective you might bring to our program is i think you might carry some of that lens with you and i think that's something that our profession and our sector are going to need going forward if we're, we're going to be successful and so i hope that uh i hope that our, our little experiment was, was was beneficial for you and that you see the world a little bit differently now yeah, I, I mean, certainly, I, I've been, my eyes have been open to a lot of things and a lot of aspects of technology that I didn't know existed. Like, it took me about ten years to get a smartphone. I should admit that on a Microsoft podcast. <laughs> we don't make a phone anymore, so it's yeah. <laughs> I was just waiting to see if you'd start again. Um, I, but yeah, it's there's also a reason that I, I was excited to spend my summer here um, because it's. You know, it strikes that balance. It's a new perspective. I'm in-house at an enormous company that 
has like shaped the technology landscape, but it's also a company that has explicit commitments to human rights and does a lot of uh, corporate social responsibility in different forms. So it wasn't a complete culture shock for me. So one of the things that uh, I, I think that people don't see from the outside is that we are a middle-aged company. And so our perspective in many ways is is different than you might expect from some of the canonical Silicon Valley organizations, simply because we have people here who've been around longer. They've dealt with you know like life stuff that isn't that puts them in a different phase, and that really does cause you to take a slightly different view on what is your contribution going to be to the world, and what is your what, how will you serve uh, the world. So, Craig, you have I'm just going to be honest. You and I have very similar backgrounds, and so. I don't want to be presumptuous, but like, so I'm going to try to not be. So I'm going to ask you. So, what did like? How has your perspective changed, or have you just have you reinforced what you thought you were going to see? Like, I'm just curious. Like, what? Tell me, what? What? What is it that you came in with that you're like, hmm, yes, as I expected, and hmm, I did not expect to see that. I think um, a lot of the work I've seen at Microsoft, I think, has been kind of what I expected coming from. You know, a, a technical degree to micro to law school to Microsoft. Um, I, I wanted to come here because I could easily see myself working at a company like Microsoft at some point in my career, and I wanted to try it out before I put myself on that trajectory. But I think being here really has, maybe in a similar way to Sarah, kind of broadened my view of what a company like this can do, um, and specifically what attorneys and legally trained professionals in a company like this do on a day-to-day basis. Um, We had a a really interesting, I thought, meeting a couple of days ago, the interns, with um, Microsoft's chief environmental officer, and he talked... Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and we talked for a while about what Microsoft is doing to partner with NGOs and startups and government agencies to solve um, AI for Earth problems, right, on these initiatives that are doing a, a lot of good in the world. Um, and I don't think, if you had asked me before I came to Microsoft, if that was going to be one of the most interesting meetings I had gone to, I'd I don't think I would have said yes. I would have said, you know, I'm, I'm coming here to see the, the pure tech work. Um, but I think seeing how lawyers can play a hand here in helping and allowing technology to impact some of the world's biggest problems, I think that has really uh, excited me while I've been here. So the, uh, the interesting thing is uh, we are still very much a uh, for-profit enterprise, but it turns out that this is really good business. Right, that a lot of the things that people think are uh, pro-social, um, you know, whether it's our diversity and inclusion initiatives, whether it's thinking about sustainability, they're just really good business. And which doesn't mean that we don't get to feel good about it, because I do. Um, but the other thing that it gives us access to that people don't always realize is a a more inclusive mission. And so if you look at the company's mission, it's to empower every person and organization on the planet to achieve more. And that's a very polymorphic thing, right? Like people have very different kind of measurements of what achievement looks like. And a lot of what I think you're offering is interesting if you are an employee because it means that your contribution doesn't always have to be quite as narrow as one might think when you first showed up. It turns out your ability to to contribute to, to the world is actually much more multifaceted. And I'm curious. So I look. So I am uh, a good bit older uh, than you guys. I'm. Uh, so I, I graduated. No. So I'm from a pure law career, and I've worked in industry five years before that. I was. Four, I'm 14 years 
I guess, ahead of you guys, or whatever the 14 year gap. So it's a full generational shift. Like I'm in a completely different generation from where you guys are. And I guess I'm just curious for for your peers, I'm not gonna you know, pin you down on, uh, on this, but for your peers, like, is having a mission-driven organization important? Like, do you hear people talk about that? Is that something they care about and value? I would say yes. Uh, I think it's it's kind of a common theme in in my school, at least, that eighty percent of the student body comes in saying that they want to do public interest work, and then eighty percent of the student body ends up going to a law firm. And I don't like to think that that just means that they all sold their souls and changed their minds. Uh, although, you know, debt is real. Uh, but I think people are excited to go to firms. The, the first questions that I hear asked at these gatherings are like, well, what about the pro bono work that they do? And uh, what are the opportunities to give back? And how might this complement some of my public interest interests? So I think people are particularly excited about that. And I think it extends beyond the legal field. Like my partner is pursuing an MBA because he wants to see how companies can become more rooted in the communities in which they work and support them. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's on the minds of a lot of uh, a lot of students that I've talked to, a lot of law students. They, they want to know what they can do to contribute to that mission that you, that you talked about. And whether that's immediately at the law firm or whether they want to use a law firm as kind of a training ground so that they can make a greater impact on their mission later in their career. Um, I think everybody has it in, in the back of their mind somewhere. That's really interesting because when I was coming along, this wasn't typically something that employers differentiated on. Um, they didn't give much voice to it. And I think we're seeing some of those attitudes evolve. And I think it's a good thing. Uh, and so I'm excited that, you know, from, from your guys' standpoint, like that's something that people vocally care about because. I think that also helps bring along the employers and helps them see that if you want more engaged employees who are bringing all that they have to support your enterprise, you, you maybe have to give them something a little bit more than you did historically. And you really have to give them some outlets that tap into their intrinsic motivations, their passions, the things that they're really, you know, that move them. Um, because historically that has not always been something that's been on offer. Yeah, I think it creates a more sustainable work working environment for employees and then also for outside shareholders and stakeholders like most of them would be interested in a company that has some some stability and some cognizance of what else is going on in the world and how their mission might align with that that makes sense so i guess let's let's talk about kind of the future and and kind of where how how do you make these things fit together so the profession demands a lot how how do you see it kind of fitting into your your future life in, in the, the next few years how are you gonna because it, it, it just it takes a lot of time so how are you gonna make it work i think um i mentioned seeing the law firm as as experience and i think that is how i look at the first the first phase of my career is um maybe analogous to like a residency in medicine where you go, you work very hard for a couple of years to get as much experience as you can, as much exposure as you can, um, so that you can that you can focus down the line and you can be more effective down the line. And so that is hopefully what's going to keep me afloat, so to speak, throughout the, um, the long hours and hard times. That and I think this this message that we just talked about, about having having a vision, having a mission, it's not just the assignment on the table in front of me, it's 
part of a larger uh, a larger effort. Yeah, I think that's a good way of, of phrasing it. Um, I still am not sure exactly what my career as a lawyer will look like, even in you know the first couple of years out of law school. Certainly, far down the line, uh, I'm looking at law firms that have you know business and human rights practices and that work with tech companies. And I'm also looking at more traditional, for my background, nonprofit organizations that do this sort of work or groups that collaborate across different types of stakeholders. Uh, and I, I think part it is a consideration for me, like how how can I be a whole person um, if I'm at a law firm and I am getting great training, um, but I'm not having the opportunity to explore different areas of work or to learn about the things that I care about and support them at the same time as I'm supporting my clients. Uh, I don't know if I would feel like a whole person, and I know that's a very millennial thing to say, um, but that's why you have the young people on the podcast. Uh, so I, it, is, it is a consideration for me how I can you know, try out new things and get good training, and how I can do that while staying true to the reasons that I went to law school in the first place. And I, I would like to challenge the myth that a law firm is the only place where you can get training because I know a lot of public interest work lawyers who are pretty good at their jobs. No, that's absolutely true. So it is, okay, so look, I, 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 have, I carry biases because I, I trained at a law firm, but you're absolutely right. So public interest, public interest and public sector both often offer fantastic training opportunities. Um, and we often don't give adequate voice to that. And so thank you for bringing that forward. The other thing that's interesting that you mentioned is the, the idea of uh, basically having an integrated self in your work, and that that's a millennial concept. And I would offer you that that's something that your generation gives voice to, but many of us had the same concerns, but we didn't have language for it. We didn't have space to offer it to other people to, to think about. Um, there's a, a man named Chris DeSantis who gives these amazing generational differences trainings. Have you, do you... Yeah, uh, Microsoft gave some of us the opportunity to attend the leadership conference oh. on Legal Diversity Conference, and Chris was the closing speaker there, and it you know brought the house or the Sheridan Hotel down. It was really interesting and fun. Yeah. Did, did he, what, what did he, I'm curious, what did he give you there? So he talked about uh, generational differences, and I think given the audience of the conference, it was sort of targeted at this question of how do you work across these differences to succeed in your first job, which will most likely be as an associate at a law firm. Um, but he talked a bit about this, like how uh, partners at a firm, you know, it's not just like this stereotype that I went through this and so you should go through it too and not be telling me that you have to have more work-life balance, um, but more so that there hasn't been a conversation openly about this sort of thing and it's you know you need to find the right language uh to to bring this sort of thing up and make sure that it it fits in well with the work that they're doing and then he also talked about like fascinating stereotypes across gener generations the training he gives is really amazing because what he does is uh, offer for the audience that he he grounds the perspective that people have in the basically the context in which they grew up and when you start 
seeing it from that perspective is like, oh, you're not a weirdo. Like all of us, we're products of our environment. And so, you know, I, if, you, if you kind of frame that, it's like, oh, you, you start to understand uh, some of the behaviors that get formed in people. So the other thing that um, I'll just offer, uh, I guess, a provocation on, and, and, and I'm not sure if you guys have thoughts, is you've seen how the work actually lands here, right? You've, you've seen kind of legal work attached to a business need. And I'm curious if you think that gives you a more tangible perspective on why your work might matter as a, somebody providing outside counsel that maybe keeps you more engaged and draws you forward. I think absolutely. I've thought a lot about that here at Microsoft. It was really my first, my closest experience with actual legal work product, right? And and um, I think people have a tendency, I had a tendency to believe, you know, how, how much are the lawyers actually crucial here? Like, are they just doing paperwork to enable other people to do the real work or are the lawyers really contributing? And I think I've seen how, at least in most of the contexts that I've, that I've been part of, um, the lawyers are really integral to um, the progress of the work. They're, they're making decisions, they're giving input, they're helping to shape the, um, the path that the work takes. And then I, I think they, they contribute a lot more than I might have anticipated in some contexts. Were you, I'm, I'm curious if you were surprised by the amount of business counseling, so not even like legal issues, but commonsensical business counseling that you saw in the yeah. practice here. Yeah, definitely. Because I mean, like I, I feel like I'm gonna reveal some secrets, but uh, so especially on, uh, so I, I was a product attorney and then I uh, was an IP subject matter uh, expert. And so on the IP side, I was doing some real law stuff. But as a product attorney, the, the joke I've often offered people is, it's almost like I was a Texas Ranger and I was just trying to keep blood off the streets. Like <laughs> you cover so much ground and you have to shoot from the hip all the time to like, well, I don't with precision know the answer to this, but going back to first principles, this is what we think the shape of an answer looks like and if it continues down that path then we'll go get you know smarter on that but you really do have need that kind of agility of going back to the general concepts for a lot of these things because when you're uh, the, the other thing I tell people is when you're doing product work here it's almost like you're a mini 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 general counsel because your clients can come to you with anything and you know you, you can always say I don't know but at the very least you should offer like I don't know the, the you know the, the answer to your question but here's some things you can think about and I'm curious if you guys saw much of that realizing that your the practices you were supporting were radically different so uh, Sarah you, you're starting with more of a subject matter expertise so I'm, I'm curious what that looked like from the work that you saw yeah it's interesting because the attorneys with whom I worked their clients were other attorneys within Microsoft so a product lawyer coming to them with a question that relates to competition law or antitrust matters. Uh, and I, I think you and Craig summed it up very well about like the the importance of business counseling and it's it's just it's something that has come up in every job I've ever had, like even going back to working in food service, but certainly like throughout the nonprofit industry and, and this work, um, the ability to talk to different audiences. So the conversations that I hear when I sit in on a team meeting are very different than the conversation that the attorney is going to have with the product lawyer who asked the question. And I'm sure that's vastly different from the conversation that you would have as that product attorney with the people who develop that product. Um, and so 
outside counsel plays a different role in that chain. But I think knowing knowing your audience and knowing how to give them the answer that they need without showing them absolutely everything that you know on the matter, it can be crucial. And that's something I'm starting to learn here. So that little dose of wisdom that you guys get to walk away with is invaluable because I think, when I look back at my experience, the I didn't always understand how the guidance I was giving to my business clients. So when I was outside counsel and I, I counseled mostly startups, I often didn't really know how the guidance I was offering was going to land as something they would turn into action. And I suspect that you guys are walking away with a deeper understanding of kind of the links in the chain and how it's almost like a refinery process, a refinement process. And so I'm curious, you know, Craig, like having seen what you have, if you were operating as outside counsel, do you, do you think it would change how you deliver your work product? Do you think you have a better sense of what you would sculpt so that it has more refined value for your, your customer? Yeah, I think I do. Um, but I'm not going to pretend like I know a lot about it or, or, or that I can predict um, everything I would do as outside counsel. But I think knowing, you know, having been in meetings on this side where we've reviewed memos that we've gotten from outside counsel or, or, or guidance from outside counsel, I can see how it's received and uh, what makes outside counsel most helpful or what makes the attorneys here roll their eyes at, at what they received from outside counsel or really they sent us this or didn't we already get something just like this and that's uh, something that hopefully will be helpful uh, if I end up counseling companies like this from the outside. So I'm curious if you guys have any thoughts on whether your educational experiences are, are preparing you to be effective in that way. I think um, most of my law school experience has been entirely irrelevant to my work here, <laughs> and I suspect entirely irrelevant to my work when I start my career. Uh, there have been some really valuable classes, I think. I've, um, I've tried to focus on a lot of hands-on classes, classes on contract drafting or um, like venture capital. Often they're taught by actual partners from firms who will come in and teach, and I think that's a different feel than um, the professor who's been there for three decades. And I've had a lot of those classes that have been great too, but you know, this morning on a project, I was, I was helping review an agreement and actually applying a lot of the things that I had learned a month ago sitting in a classroom where we had actually um, written out a, a contract for a similar license agreement. And that, I think, should happen more often than it does in law school. Yeah. Uh, I, my law school experience has probably been too characterized by terror to actually know exactly <laughs> how relevant it is to everything I'm doing here. Um, but you know, I, I, it's incredibly valuable, and it will be hard to to say with certainty what what was useful and what was useless for probably decades. Like I, I'm sure a lot of it will come into play in different ways that I'm not foreseeing. Um, but initially, like I, it seems like a lot of schools encourage a certain type of learning and that sort of, you know, black letter law, reading cases and uh, being on call and responding in <laughs> class doesn't necessarily translate to the way I've seen people interact in the legal profession or the world. Um, and it seems like there's less of an emphasis sometimes on the clinical work, the hands-on work, uh, and not that those opportunities don't exist, but, and, and I don't want to point the finger at, you know, Harvard Law School, do emphasize clinics more, but when I talk to people in my family, people outside of the school, uh, everyone's like, well, you got to take corporations, you got to take tax, and nobody says, 
you got to make sure to take a clinic where you do transactional work or you need to make sure to get some one-on-one time with clients, whether it's uh, doing some sort of legal aid work or working with a startup company in the town. And, and I think that's interesting. And I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued to see as I go through law school how I can get both of those opportunities and also if I can understand why people emphasize certain things so much more than other things or if it's just the way it's always been done. So the analogy I sometimes offer people is uh, becoming an effective lawyer is a little bit like making a knife. And so what you do is you go to law school and you basically create a, a blank, right? And it looks, it's roughly the shape of a knife, right? And if you, if you look at it not too closely, it looks like a knife that, that might actually cut things, but it turns out it has no edge to it. And it's necessary because you, you actually need something that is the shape of a knife to make a knife. But you actually need real work to sharpen the edge because the details of the work are where you actually hone your edge as an attorney. The challenge uh, for law schools is you know, they offer you these abstractions, um, which are useful for understanding general principles. There's often a huge gap between the general principles of things and how you might actually do a thing. And I'm not, I don't, I do not pretend to have the solution for this, but I do think that you guys are offering some really valuable insights that, you know, the sooner you can find a way to minimum viable lawyer, the better you are you off in your career. And the other thing I'll, I'll say is, I suspect you will have a rich sense of this, Sarah, within three years. Like three, three years post graduation, you will have seen enough of whatever it is you do that you're like, ah, this is. Like I have a sense of like, the value of this. And it turns out it is really valuable because when I was talking about having to go back to first principles, like to, like those have to come from somewhere, right? Now we can argue about whether the, the right way to teach it is with the case methodology and so forth and so on, but it needs to come from somewhere. But I, I, I think you guys are right that there probably is room for some type of improvement. And just as an, uh, a geezer, I'm curious, like, so is the Socratic method, is that still around? Like, what does that still happen? Do you, do you have to worry about it if you prepare? <laughs> we had a zero L course, uh, which like, thank you for providing that. Um, but one of the segments on it was learning about the Socratic method. So it definitely still exists in my school and we have to prepare for it. <laughs> I've had, uh, I've had a, a few classes with pure Socratic method, cold call. You never know when you're going to get called on. I've had, I think it's much more common for me to have classes that have uh, panels. So maybe four or five people will know before class. You better be on your toes because you're going to get called on today. See, but that's, so, I look, I can argue it both ways, but I think you guys have seen Like any lawsuit. It depends. Um, <laughs> uh, I can get you to maybe. So, uh, the, the, I think you guys have probably seen, though, that the nature of our work here probably looks more like the panel, yeah. <laughs> right? And so one of the things that I am, I'm curious about is, does Socratic teach you guys how to be teammates? No. No. See, so this is where I think an over-reliance on that approach is creating a huge disservice to the profession because the nature of modern knowledge work is often where you are combining what you produce with others. And if you don't learn how to play nice in the sandbox, and to learn how to support other people and make them better, then you're going to thrive less. Because the other realistic thing, if we're honest about it, is 
So historically, a lot of being a lawyer was you were a gatekeeper to information. Your actual value was, well, there's a magical thing over there that you can't get that I can because I've, I've either trained or I have a bar license or what have you. And that's not what the future is going to look like. And so really, if we think about what value looks like in modern knowledge work, it's in synthesizing things that are probably available to other people. And so I'm curious if you guys have observed any opportunities to build, so I will say you are rising too well, so you're kind of, you're just emerging from kind of the core, but I'm curious if your schools give you guys opportunities to do that kind of synthetic work where you're actually working with other people, you're building something new, does, does much of that show up? I think, I actually have one example, um, which I'll share to contradict myself, but I think generally I had to find that work and the opportunities were abundant through all sorts of student organizations. But there was always this little voice in the back of my head or a voice that actually belonged to an advisor at the school saying like, well, make sure you don't overcommit and get too involved in these different team activities and hurt your grades. but um, I did get to participate in the negotiation workshop at Harvard. Uh, they recently redid their um, winter term offerings, and there are a lot of more workshops, uh, a lot of them that have more of a public interest learning tilt and more hands-on work. And I think that's great because public interest and hands-on work are sorely underrepresented in the 1L curriculum. Uh, and so that, that was an opportunity to work with classmates and again coming back to the idea of knowing to whom you're speaking, uh, understanding like the best way to communicate with people and to understand their interests and their needs before getting my own message across. Uh, that was very different from the Socratic method in the classroom where on some level I'm understanding the professor's needs like this is the one who likes me to give a detailed answer and this is the one who likes one word but other than that uh, there isn't there isn't really that communication and there certainly isn't an opportunity to team up with your classmate. You're more like, oh, cool, she got that question, so I'm going to just zone out and try and anticipate the next one. Not that I do that. No. <laughs> of course not. No, I, I would never. No. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I think um, there can be opportunities for teamwork in those classes outside of class. You can get together, study, make sure you know the material inside the class during class time I think it can be difficult to find that that teamwork aspect the communication aspect it's a little more common uh, like you said in extracurriculars and clinics uh, I think in in those hands-on classes you know I've, I've done workshops um, or simulations or, or working together to, to work on a project but it's less common I think in the black letter law courses which make up the majority of, of the first year curriculum so you, you guys really have to go seek out experiences that give you relational skills is what I, what I think I'm hearing. I think it would be easy to come out of your first year of law school with very little in the way of relational skills and to thrive doing that. I think that's a good way to put it. It's not that, it's not that there are none and that you have to really look in the dark corners to find them, but I think they're easy to dodge. Mm-hmm. And a lot of students will dodge them in favor of more time studying to get a better grade. So that's, it's so interesting to me because everything we read about is that the future is the hybridization of technical skills and relational skills, right? And we, it's, uh, so if I go way, way back, um, when I was in engineering school, we were told, and I, I rejected it thoroughly, that 
you guys get out into industry and people really like you, but you cannot communicate and you cannot connect with people and you cannot tell stories and you cannot work with other people. And we're like, yeah, yeah, but I'm, I'm smart. And it, and it turns out that uh, if you have great ideas but cannot effectively share them or influence people, it doesn't really matter <laughs> how smart you are. And so I, 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 I'm, I hope that uh, the schools start taking the opportunity to gift you guys more of the relational because they do a, they do a really good job with the technical. I mean, I would say academic technical rather than maybe practical technical, but you know, you, you, you have to start with that base. Um, and I would really love to see more intentionality put around gifting you the relational sooner because I think that would make you more successful because you create more opportunity because that's often where the, the relational ends up supporting that. And so I'm curious, like, it, like, how is the is any of this modeled for you? Does this do people teach this, or do you have to kind of figure it out on your own? You have to seek mentorship. Like, how, how you, it seems like you guys have a pretty evolved sense of this. Well, thank you. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I think it, it, we pick it up in different ways, and by we, I am, you know, grandly speaking, for one L students everywhere, uh, but it's. It's something that I, I probably learned through years of working before coming to law school, and so I'm less aware of the moments that I'm learning it in law school. It's more just like jumping into the painting that already exists. Uh, but I, I do want to say, I guess that despite a, perhaps the de-emphasis on relational skills and teamwork and supporting each other in the academic curriculum. I don't see that lacking in my classmates. Like everyone is incredibly supportive and thoughtful and good at collaboration in ways that do not align with the warnings I heard before coming to law school about how competitive and cutthroat it would be. Um, and so that's something where I don't know where they all learned it because a lot of them are younger than I am, uh, but they're incredibly impressive in their ability to sort of pick up on that. I suspect part of this is uh, generational differences in as much as the classes that are coming now are a little bit more connected. They, I think they tap into a more worldly view of what their work means and how they will impact the world. Whereas, you know, latchkey kids, like for my generation, like we were, we had much more of a kind of a survival. <laughs> and so we, we kept a lot of our ambitions small, but uh, it's, it's really heartening to see you guys show up and even though the incentives for you to be that way might not always be emphasized you're clearly evidencing it and that gives me a lot of hope and so good very good so let's let's take a, a step back um so getting into law school so you, you guys have already gotten into law school and we've talked a little bit about like you navigating the path what does the entry process look like these days like what how does it work? Like, what, what, how do you hack it? What is, you guys have clearly been successful in that. So tell secrets. What, what's the magic? I think, um, the, I think that the entry process lasts about three and a half hours and you sit in a classroom somewhere on some college campus and you, uh, fill in bubbles on it. Right, it's online now. It's on a computer now, isn't it? The LSAT? Not when I did it. <laughs> Not when I did it either, but I think they've changed it since. But I think one of the one of the issues with the admissions process is that um, it is so so dependent on the LSAT. I would I would say maybe seventy percent of your admissions decision is based on that one test. 
and then maybe another 20% on your GPA and 10% on all those other things that don't matter, like your people skills and your background. Yeah. It's nice to see that the focus is where it, where it really comes. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure how much um, different aspects of my background, including my LSAT score and my underwhelming undergraduate GPA, uh, came into my selection. But I do know that it was a crapshoot. Like the lowest ranked school that I applied to is the only school that rejected me. Um, I right now I go to a school that like I laughed when filling out the application for it because it just seemed like such a reach. Uh, and so it is. On the one hand, that could be a great thing uh, because it's uh, it means that they're taking into account different things. And maybe I am finding a place that's a good fit for me. Uh, on the other hand, it is a bit of a black box where I don't know how much of it came came down to just the numbers on the page versus um, the fact that I have kind of a, a different background than other students, although everybody has a different background from one another. So basically, somewhere between nakedly transparent and inscrutable. <laughs> somewhere between that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I, I love to tell you that uh, I would I would have given a different answer, but uh, I, <laughs> I had, as you know, decade and a half ago, radically similar experiences, and so it's interesting to see that this has not really changed much, even though the world has changed so much in that period of time, and the set of skills that you should you you will be realistically expected to deploy are different than they used to be. And let me be more precise. So going back to what we were talking about, like relational skills. So a lot of the, the beauty of relational skills are that they let you uh, effectively interoperate in complex environments more effectively. And that's really what a lot of work is starting to look like today. You have coordination and communication cost to do really hard, complicated things. And if you think about the nature of the uh, intake process, what it's really solving for, I think, I could be wrong, but the testing is basically solving for people who can take a timed test as an individual contributor. And so basically what they are is people who can optimize for things that you, you actually don't have to go very deep on, if we're really honest. Like, it's about very quick comprehension with almost no depth. And that's not what a lot of our work really looks like, the highest value of our work. And so I just wonder if the, the, the testing apparatus is well adapted for the work that happens on the other side. I'm, I mean, I don't know. Like, would you guys have any thoughts? Yeah. I, I think I agree with you. It's a very strange thing to do. And I'm not sure that it correlates well with the work that actually happens as a, as a lawyer. I think what they've found that it does correlate well with is your performance your first year of law school and I think that's one of the one of the things that they argue for the LSAT with um, but as we said earlier I, I don't know if what you do your first year of law school is really indicative of how well you'll how well you'll do as an attorney and, and so I think that there are other um, more relevant factors that they could in, that they could look at in, in law school admissions yeah and it makes me wonder how much of it uh, is a self-reinforcing process, for lack of a better way of phrasing it. Um, the LSAT suggests how well you're going to do in your first year of law school, and how well you do in your first year of law school uh, 
feeds right into what offers you're going to get from law firms where, you know, after one year of law school, most people are set on where they're going. And the people who succeed at those law firms are people who came up through that system. And when I look for someone smart, I look for someone who looks like me because I think that my ideas are great and my insights are brilliant and my jokes are funny. And they're going to look for similar things. And so it's, you know, it seems like it's, it's more than a question of um, stating a commitment to diversity and inclusion and uh, taking into account other things in people's backgrounds, uh, but really like examining systemically what what we value and why we value it and who's making the decisions based on those values. Yeah, but that's hard. Yeah, well, I mean, if we could distill it into a three-hour test, then maybe we could try and change it. But thus far, it requires, like, conversations and relationships. Woo, does that scale? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And then, like, how do you get consistency? Yeah, no, so I think you guys actually gave us the hack, which is get good grades, get a great LSAT score, and then a lot of the other things line up. The, 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 cha- the obvious challenge being that, you know, beyond the, it, it may not even be the best measure of your capacity to thrive on the other side, you know, it moves with this, it, it, the, the meritocracy pres- presumes that everybody kind of starts off from the same place, like the same level of resource and all kinds of other things. And I don't, I mean, I, I'm not convinced that's what happens. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm curious if you guys have any thoughts on that. Like, yeah. Um, like one of the applications I remember filling out asked, did anyone else help you with your application? And I was like, I'm delighted that this school is asking this question and I have no idea how to answer it. Like, no, I didn't take an LSAT prep course. Um, nobody, I didn't get somebody to edit my essay for me. My dad offered edits and I rejected them. (laughs) But look where I am now. Uh, But, you know, did anybody help me with my application? Like, my parents helped me by only letting me watch PBS when I was a kid and teaching me how to read at a young age. And, you know, I had access to good schools in the neighborhood where I grew up. Like, so many people and so many systems helped me get to where I am. And it's very difficult to account for all of that and that feeds into you know your ability to perform maybe on this one three-hour test um which also does not necessarily account for differences in you know the the types of experiences that people bring into the room with them and levels of anxiety that people might have um but it also it also plays out in where you're able to look and choose for law school like Law school is expensive, and there's a reason that so many people end up looking at firms even when that wasn't necessarily their stated interest at the beginning. And I wonder how much of the system, uh, in addition to you know focusing on, on very specific measurable things that may not capture the diversity of experiences of a, a potential student body, how much it might also, even people who, who meet that cri- those criteria might be crowded out uh, just based on the daunting finances of it, and that was a bit of a ramble. I'm concerned about it. Thank you. <laughs> I thought it pretty linear. Very <laughs> uh, followable. Yeah. So one of the implicit uh, things you're highlighting for us is that it the you know thriving on the LSAT 
getting into law school may seem like a point in time thing, but it actually is happening after decades of investment. Right, and so you have to have been built up to be the athlete to thrive in that competition, and we often don't take that into account when we're thinking about like who shows up at the door. It's like this presumption, like oh, it's like you know, everybody shows up with the same kind of uh, shot at, at winning. It's like, well, maybe, maybe not. And I'm, cu- I'm curious, like, so you guys have a class of people who have very different backgrounds. They have, you know. You have different personalities for different schools. And I'm curious, you know, look, I'm, I'm sure you have this in your law schools, but in the summer experience, like, has there been value in being able to observe how people think differently, how they solve differently? Has that been something that's been useful for you? I think it has been useful to see within our intern class, everybody coming, you know, from different backgrounds and different interests, different perspectives. I will say, though, that, that I, I see a lot of that at law school as well. I think, um, you know, I go to law school with people who are at least as varied in their in every every aspect of them. So interestingly, uh, your schools are uh, hyper elite, and I think I wouldn't be surprised if they don't, if it's not easier for them to actually assemble exactly what they want. Like they get to really pick and choose. Um, and so actually what you're saying resonates. Uh, and I, I suspect that you probably do have a really just radically diverse group of folks. Um, and I'm curious if it looks the same when you get into the middle, where I wonder if it shakes a little bit differently and that because of people's concerns about gaming um, the rankings, if they start to get a little bit more fixated on some of the objective scores because they think that result is so going back to what Sarah was talking about, like there's kind of this, you know, this pipeline of success that happens if, you know, like high score on this, high grades on that, and then like you get the coveted, uh, you know, big law job. Uh, so I don't know, but I'm just, I, I wonder if it kind of shakes out that way, especially when you get into the, the middle ranks. Yeah, I, I don't, I, I can't say, but I, I wouldn't be surprised. I, well, I was expecting you to be uh, an authority on it. No, I think it's unrealistic to uh, ask that. So, I guess you know you you guys have been here for for several weeks. You have different perspectives. You, you've hopefully learned some things. And so, like, what's what are you solving for next? Like, tell me a little bit about your process and what you're expecting happens with the next turn. Yeah, we'll get back to you. Okay. Uh, I think both of us leave here and head straight into um, on-campus interviewing, uh, which I'm sure most of your listeners know is... Uh, Let's not presume that they know. Tell tell me about OCI. How does that work? So OCI is when the people who had a good first year of law school set themselves up and the people who had a bad first year of law school fret enormously until they realize that life is going to be fine and they are going to have incredible and nonlinear careers just like all of us. Um, But what it actually is in practice is that law firms from around the country and I guess the world to some extent uh, come to law schools all over the U.S. and will do a series of short interviews with students and then there will be callbacks and eventually offers. The idea is that you get an offer maybe in like September, October. Uh, You work there your second summer. If you don't do a a bad job, you get a job after law school. So what what is is the first interview? What does a short interview mean? 
So when, when you interviewed me uh, for this summer internship, it was about 30 minutes long, and that's the longest one I've ever had. They're usually 20 minutes at my school. Yeah, about 20 minutes is the standard. So I, I have to go meet a bunch of strangers and somehow discriminate the right fit from whatever my formula is with a 20-minute sample size, and my decision will inform probably the rest of your career. Yeah, it does not sound like a great system. It sounds brilliant. Um, <laughs> so when you get, so, wow, man, okay. So if that is the gauntlet, what does one do to prepare oneself to try to find the best fit, to try to provide a, a view on what you have so that you, you know, you're, you're found by the, the right place and then you ultimately matriculate through well I, I think at least for fight for getting found by the right place um, I think every school does it a little bit differently most schools you'll bid for certain firms will say you know I, I really want to interview with firm X firm Y is my second choice firm Z is my third choice and then some algorithm somewhere will decide your interview schedule um, I think it's much harder to determine which of those firms do you really want the most? At some point, once you've narrowed the enormous list of firms around the world down to some manageable number that do work that you're interested in or that are in cities where you want to live, um, after after a lot of searching, the firms all start to look kind of the same. Mm -hmm. uh, they all say the same things. You'll, at interviews at least, you'll meet all the nice people from those firms. and. Uh, and so, at least for me, it's been very difficult to kind of see through the see through the fog to um, to pick where I want to start my career. Um, I've had a lot of people. I've tried to synthesize all the advice that I've gotten, and I think basically what it comes down to is after you've picked a couple of employers that, that you think you're interested in, you go, you interview with all of them. Hopefully, you get callback interviews, and then when you're at the callback interview, you ask yourself, "Do I feel like I fit in here? Do I feel like I'd enjoy it here?" And you just have to hope that you get a, a firm yes or a no from that. That's if you have any uh, secrets. I, I mean, I want to hear them, Sarah, but I don't have any better ideas than that. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, nor do I. But I think that's that sums it up very well. Um, it's a challenge for the interviewer and the interviewee to figure out anything in twenty minutes. When you know, I'm still figuring out what to do with my hands at that point. <laughs> um, but I. One thing that I did in my interview process for this summer, and it worked out well, was just to be slightly more honest than I necessarily think I would suggest someone doing in interviews, um, as maybe as I've indicated over the course of this conversation. Um, like, I'm, I'm pretty open about certain things, and there are certain things that you should be open about during interviews and others that they're like, oh, save that for after you get an offer. Um, and I think my approach will be to be somewhat more open about my interests, my concerns, my background when I'm in this interview and hope that that might help with some of the self-selection. Uh, you know, if, if I don't get a call back, at least I know it's because I was my true self and maybe I wouldn't have been a good fit at that firm um, as opposed to just trying to be exactly what each firm wants and you know discerning from their websites and their mission statements as Craig was saying like how to tweak that um, 
just coming in and saying like, yeah, you'll see that I have eight years of experience in human rights nonprofits, and I'm not going to pretend that I stopped caring about that in the past year. (laughs) (laughs) But that takes a lot of courage, right? Because especially if you have a mountain of debt, it takes real courage to say, look, I may not be the cup of tea for you and thus limit the number of suitors who can give you that first law, big law check. And not just courage, but I would say privilege. I don't have a family that I need to support um, or you know, I don't have a, an extra mountain of debt from undergrad. I think, again, talking about who who's able to pursue this path. Um, there, there's some level of privilege in what I just said I plan to do because I know I could go back to my nonprofit worlds if I wanted to. And I don't know that everybody has that option if they're taking on these levels of law school debt. I, I still think it's... There is I'm real, super brave. Yes, <laughs> super brave. <laughs> yes let's, let's acknowledge that. But I also think that there is real wisdom in what you offer and that, look, everybody has to decide what version of this... It is for themselves, but if you offer some authenticity around who you are and what you care about and and the things that drive you, then I think you have a better chance of lining up to fit. And I'm curious, have you guys been doing any, uh, augmenting your search with any kind of relational approaches or are you just going based on the collateral that you can find? I've tried to reach out to um, especially junior associates at a lot of the firms that I'm interested in. I've also done some reaching out to people who are farther down the line in careers that I might be interested in in transitioning into, like in-house at Microsoft and and other companies. Um, That, I think, is really helpful to just say, well, for the associates of the firm, a lot of my questions are, what do you do? Like, tell me what you did today at work. Uh, I want to see past the curtain. I want to see exactly what goes on. And why are you at that firm? Why did you choose to stay there? Why did you choose it in the first place? Um, it, you know, like, like Sarah said, I think there are some things that they discourage you from asking in the interview at OCI. And you think you can ask them before and you can ask them after. And so I've tried to get some of them out of the way previously to be very honest. Like, I've heard this thing about that firm. That kind of scares me. Did you think about that when you went there? Or, or was there something that assuaged that concern? Uh, and I think those are very helpful in the sense that they give you an idea of where you might want to look at interviewing and where you might want to apply. And they can be also very helpful down the line. You can say, I, I met with so-and-so, really liked what he or she said about the firm. Um, so I think it's helpful on multiple levels. And so how do you find the right person to ask? I, I use a lot of LinkedIn searches. Uh, I'll look for, this isn't a plug for Microsoft uh, services, but uh, but I use a lot of LinkedIn and I'll, often I'll look for people who have something in common with me. It might be a common um, alma mater or it could be uh, an interest. I see that they have some experience that I want to know more about and I can use that to kind of say, uh, you know, I'm, I'm also interested in this or look, we went to the same school. I'd love to hear about your experience. And almost everybody has been in fact, I don't think I've, I've run into anybody who's been reluctant to talk to me. They're all very willing to, to help out. Have you guys connected with the, uh, the interns in, from previous generations at all? Yeah. Uh, I have, I connected with one, which is the reason that I ended up focusing on Microsoft for a summer search. But I think um, that's something that we as an intern class are working on improving 
for future cohorts that we want there to be a centralized place with that information so we can connect with one another. I think that was really helpful. I, I talked with, I think, maybe the previous four or five Stanford interns who had come here, and they were just immensely helpful. Um, and I, I think my, the Microsoft internship application was kind of middle of the pile before I talked with them, and then hearing their experience was really moved it up in the rankings. Um, and I think that you know we're trying to provide a similar uh, resource for the interns who come after us. So yeah. if you're listening now, planning on applying, reach out. <laughs> yeah, and I, I hope it's okay to give credit. I think that was your idea, Jason, that we could have these this more better system for connecting with people like that. I'm sure that was somebody else's idea. Um, <laughs> so I, I cannot remark enough on the power of reaching out to the people who've had the experience that you want to have. And I'm so delighted to hear that you guys integrate that into part of your process because I keep having conversations with people who are earlier in career and they don't take advantage of all this low search cost information. And I just, I just kind of like shake my head, like, how can you know? Because like, last I checked, there are not very many psychics or telepaths among us. And so the idea that we can somehow infer or intuit what is on the other side of an opaque door is crazy. And so I think that what you're offering people is, is a deep, deep wisdom of if you want to make a, a smart decision, like go talk to the person who went to the other side of that door and really ask them some fairly pointed questions about what is over there. What what is your what do you do? Um, and I think that you're right to really think about staging that at the right time, right? Because I agree, Sarah, that like in the middle of the weeder interviews, probably not the best time to go in on the hunt for like so tell me about your social ills at your organization like that's not really the best uh, time but it is a, a question that you you really do want to solve for because goodness of fit matters and one of the other things that is interesting is people you think that you're interviewing with a firm if you're doing that approach and let's just say organization you think you're interviewing with an organization and you absolutely are there will be a macro level culture at whatever the organization is where you're we're in one right now. But the thing that flavors your experience most is who you work with day to day. And so when I was, like if we go back to the Stone Ages, when I was in this process, a lot of what I was doing is very similar to what you would do. And then when I would go on site for the callbacks, I would look at things like, are doors open? Is there an energy or a noise that sounds like people are actually happy to be there? Do people smile at each other? Do they acknowledge each other? Is there civility in the pleasantries that would make me feel good about being there? Because, you know, so I was entering a space where there were just not that many people who had my ethnographic composition. So uh, the firm I was was at most recently, like I was the one black male attorney in like a 700 person law firm. And so, you know, that might be something that you say like, oh wow, and by the way, oh wow. But the people that I worked with were genuinely caring and they looked after me and they cared for me and they wanted me to thrive and be successful. And so you would only know that if you were on the ground because the thing that ultimately flavors the experience are the people that you're dealing with day to day. And so I, I, just, I can't co-sign what you guys are saying enough. When people are thinking about 
the search process, the numbers matter, the, like all that, like you know, the collateral, but the thing, the, but actually doing what you're doing and getting the ground truth of what the experience will be like is just critical. So, bravo. So, I'm curious as a general matter, are there things kind of at the macro layer, culturally in the profession that you're seeing that, you know, concern you? Like, is, is there, what, what do I need to be worried about? I mean, I, I am sometimes nervous about how accurate the predictions were about law school in terms of my mental health and how those pale in comparisons to the predictions I hear about law firms' effects on mental health. Uh, I know there are some firms that are starting to look more closely at that to give associates a bonus that is specifically to be used for a vacation, for example. Um, that's definitely a concern for me, though, when I'm when I'm considering uh, this path. Like, will this be sustainable for me? Um, and will I, you know, will I come out the other side with great training and uh, enormous anxiety, or, you know, will it actually be an environment where people look after you? Yeah, I think that is a real concern. Uh, and I think another thing that I've, I guess, noticed and worried a little about in law school. Um, it's the amount of just alcohol and drinking that there is. Um, I, I don't drink, so I don't, I'm not worried personally about it, but I think that for a profession that I think at last count, one third of lawyers were problem drinkers, according to some study um, one or two years ago. But already in law school, it seems like you can't get three students together without the school providing some, some drinks and, and uh, encouraging, you know, bar review and, and all sorts of, uh, um, of drinking and it seems like you know I'm not advocating that everybody stop drinking now forever but I, I think it's strange that there doesn't seem to be a recognition that this is a real concern in this profession specifically and it, it doesn't seem like something you want to encourage right at the starting line uh, and, and I think those are probably very closely related the two issues we talked about so, the, the, so I think what I'm hearing is I could be wrong we have some kind of common traits that don't always create psychological safety and feeling of like comfort and well-being and so then we seek medication <laughs> and 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 then unfortunate things happen yeah yeah and so i guess what if you had a magic wand you know like what do you got i guess let me put it this way do you think there are some root causes that we might address as a profession that might result in people seeking less medication. How about that? How about the doable hours? Yeah, I mean, I think the hours are a real concern. Um, yeah. it, if you can't build a life outside, <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it might lead some people to do it all at once, drink it all at once when they do have a free moment away from their desk. Do you think that that construct is where you will unleash your... So if we go back and we, we presume that the future of knowledge economy is, is synthesis and, and creativity, do you, do you feel like that construct is where you will be able to unleash your greatest creativity? You mean oh, within bill, the constraints bill, of the billable hour, yeah. No. Okay. I don't think that the billable hour is a great incentive for quality work or, or any of this type of relational uh, synthesis work that you've talked about. So if I ask you the same question twice 
and you give me the same answer twice and you get to charge me twice, do you think that creates much incentive for innovation or efficiency? I think no. Okay. I think it may create an incentive for inefficiency in certain unhealthy ways in that I might be less inclined to consult and discuss things with people because I know that I just need to be churning the entire time. Um, so I don't, I don't know if I would care as much about efficiency in that case that I'm getting the exact same question again and I'm like, cool, there's my another six hours. But I think it, may, it might discourage uh, more thought and creativity that might spring out of that. Right. I, I think efficiency is I'm going to pay this firm to do this, to give me this product, to give me this product, and I don't care how long it takes them, I'm going to pay them a specific amount that we've agreed upon. And that's when the firm might say, okay, well, how can we do this quickly so that we can move on to other other paying projects? Um, where right now, right, it's great. If it takes me three days, perfect. That's a lot of billable hours I can get for just this one project. I've never worked under the billable hour um, Specifically, so I'm, I'm sure that it's more complex than that. But I think we're seeing a lot of movement away from the billable hour. I know you've worked a lot with it, Jason, and here at Microsoft. I, I, I have on occasion touched on this topic. Uh, <laughs> so when I reflect back on my experience, it also cut in the other direction, which I had never expected. So I had a bunch of startup clients, and they were, in many instances, very leanly capitalized, and. There were times where I was rushing to do something because I knew that their resources were so limited that I felt actually bad about, you know, creating a, creating much of a bill for them. But I also knew that I had to record my time because that was the deal I had with my employer. And so there were I, I think there were times when I look back where I wanted to do a more thorough job on something, and I think I was afraid. And I, in retrospect. I could have I, I could have spent more time on it and just gone to the partner and said, hey, you should probably consider writing this down a bit um, because, you know, I, I don't feel great about the value I delivered to my client, but I just, I was scared. Like, and I, I think I was ashamed because it felt like, you know, like I should be able to do this faster. And so it really does go back to this construct that makes you feel systematically unsafe. And I, you know, I think a lot of people think that I, I talk about this a lot simply because of the kind of the business, like as a buyer, like, oh, I want a better deal. And the answer is not, I do in the sense that we want more value, but value doesn't always look like paying less. It means like getting more things that have intrinsic use for us, that have higher quality, that meet the things that we want. And sometimes that actually might cost us a little bit more, but if we, if, you know, the firm can create more utility surplus with what they're doing, then we're all better off. And so I hope that this construct will start to recede, but we'll see. We will see. You guys, I, I have held you way longer than I expected. Um, is there is there anything that we didn't hit that you, you think like, man, like we, we got to just touch on that? Everyone should spend a summer at Microsoft. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. Wow. Okay. Well, we didn't even ask her to say that. I know. I, I mean, it's uh, wow. So, okay. I, I, that is a, a fantastic uh, place. 
Sarah, Craig, you guys have been fantastic. You have brought such energy, perspective. We are better for your time here. And we are just grateful that you guys chose this experience because you had options. You didn't have to come here. There was, you know, a certain amount of risk because, hey, going to some giant middle-aged company. But I, I hope that you got a lot of value from the experience and that it's something that you'll reflect upon. It's, it's something that you really enjoyed and that helped you in your career. And I hope, I, I don't hope, I know that you guys will find ways to, to pay forward uh, any of the value that you got from this. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, thank you for paying it forward. Uh, yeah.